0: A bunch of people at Google said, like, yeah, we have language models that are way bigger than GPT-3, but uh, we just don't put them in papers. <laughs> the DeepMind language models papers, they were a year old when they finally put them out on archive or whatever. When Ilya tweeted, did the consciousness tweet, they're like, God damn, GPT, GPT-4 must be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's a zillion VCs throwing money at large language model startups right now. At some point, like Beijing Academy of AIs, and be like, look, we just trained like, a 10 to the 15 parameter model on all of YouTube and spent like $40 billion doing it. And at that point, like Jared Kaplan's going to be like in the White House press conference room being like, look, see these straight lines on log log plots. We got to, we got to do this in the USA now. (laughs) The inside view. The inside view.
1: The inside view. view. You're a master's degree student at Mila in Montreal. You have published papers on out-of-distribution generalization and robustness generalization, accepted as raw presentations and spotlight presentations at ICML and the RIPS. You've recently been thinking about scaling laws, both as an organizer and speaker for the first Neural Scaling Laws workshop in Montreal. You're currently thinking about the monotonic scaling behaviors for downstream and upstream tasks, like in the GPT-3 paper, and most importantly, people often introduce you as the itchest person at Mila on Twitter, and that's the reason why you're here today. So thanks, Hiten, for coming on the show, and it's a pleasure to have you. Likewise. You're also well-known for uh, publicizing some sweatshirts mentioning scale is all you need, AGI is coming. Yeah. H- how does those sweatshirts appear?
0: Yeah, there was a guy named Jordi, uh, or Mongo, Stop It, who interned at Mila, and he got really into scaling laws apparently via me, and then he like sent me the shirt and be like, "Look how cool this shirt is!" Like he's the person wearing the shirt in the picture, and he's like, "Look how cool this shirt I just made is!" And so then I tweeted the shirt, and then Irina just turned it like turned it into a merchandising scheme to fund future scaling law conferences. <laughs> and so she just made a bunch and started selling it to people. Like apparently. Like she sold like more than 10 to Anthropic already. Just scaling a lot t-shirts, that's the optimal funding model for supercomputers.
1: Maybe you can like explain intuitively for listeners that are not very familiar, what are scaling laws in general? Whatever your bottleneck compute
0: data parameters, you can predict what the performance will be as that bottleneck is relieved. Currently, the thing most people know how to do is predict like the upstream performance. Like the thing people want though, is to be able to predict the downstream performance and Upstream is what you're like, it's like your literal loss function that, that you're optimizing and then downstream is just any, any, any measure that you have of like something you care about. So just like a downstream dataset or like, I mean, usually, usually it's just mean like accuracy on a downstream dataset.
1: And to take like concrete examples, like for GPT-3, the upstream task is just predict the next word? What's the, What are the downstream tasks?
0: Like a 100, 190. Uh, I just, it was a, it's a zillion like, benchmarks that the NLP community has come up with over the years. Like that was, they just evaluated like the accuracy and like things like F1 score on all those.
1: And yeah, what should we care about upstream and downstream tasks?
0: Um, I mean, basically like, well, we don't really care about upstream that much Upstream's just, just the first thing that people knew how to predict, I guess, like predict the scaling of what we care about is downstream. Um, I mean, basically like downstream things that improve monotonically, they kind of can be interpreted as like capabilities or whatever. And then downstream stuff that doesn't necessarily improve monotonically often is stuff that is advertised as, as alignment stuff. So like toxicity or, uh, like if you like speculate in the future, stuff like interpretability or or controllability would be things that might not improve monotonically.
1: So you don't get more interpretability as you scale your models?
0: You do currently, but like, like the, the classic example is like, like clip, it gets more interpretable as it like has like representations that make more sense. You can imagine at a certain point, like it's less interpretable because like, then at a certain point, like it, it, the concepts it comes with, they're up with are like beyond human comprehension. I can now just how like dogs can't comprehend calculus or whatever.
1: Yeah. When you mention alignment, what's the easiest way for you to define it?
0: Um, I mean, I, it's like the, the anthropic definition is pretty practical. Like we want models that are helpful, honest, and harmless and that Seems to cover all the like weird edge cases that people can like come up with on alignment form or whatever.
1: Good. So it's not like a technical definition; it's more uh, a philosophical one. Yeah, yeah. So, do you, would you consider yourself uh, an alignment researcher or more like a, a deep learning researcher? About-
0: uh, I'd say just a beneficial AGI researcher. That 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 seems to cover cover everything. <laughs>
1: What's AGI?
0: The the definition on OpenAI's website is pretty good. Highly autonomous systems that outperform humans at most economically valuable tasks.
1: When do you think we'll get AGI? I'll
0: just say it's like, it depends mostly on just like compute stuff, but I'll just say 2040 is my median.
1: What's the, you're like 10% and 90% estimates?
0: 10% probably like 2035.
1: I think there's been a week where we got Delhi 2, Chinchilla, Palm. Um, did that like update your models in any way?
0: The one that I thought was the like was the crazy day was the uh, the the day that alpha code and the math proving thing happened on the same day. Because like especially the math stuff, like Dan Hendrix has all those slides where he's like, Oh, math has the worst scaling laws or whatever, but then like OpenAI has like the IMO stuff. So like, at at least according to like Dan Hendricks slides or whatever, that would have been like something that took longer than it did.
1: So when you mentioned the IMO stuff, I think it was like a problem from maybe 20 years ago and it was something that you can like do with maybe like two lines of math.
0: I agree. They weren't like super, super impressive, but it's more just the fact that math is supposed to have like the worst scaling supposedly, but like impressive stuff's already happening with math now.
1: Why is math supposed to have the worst scaling?
0: It's just an empirical thing. Like Dan Hendricks has that like math, uh, math benchmark thing, and then he tried to do some extrapolations based on the scaling on of like performance on that. But the amount of compute and data we currently have, it's already like doing interesting stuff. Was kind of surprising for me.
1: I think in the paper they mentioned that the method would not really scale well because of and some infinite action space when trying to think of like actions. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't update it as like, oh yeah, scaling will be easy for math.
0: I didn't update it as easy, but just easier than I had thought.
1: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Related to scaling, the paper by DeepMind about the chinchilla model was the most relevant, right?
0: Yeah. Although I thought it was interesting, like, I mean, you probably saw me tweet it, like that person on Luther Discord that was like, oh wait, Sam Altman already said this like six months ago, but they just didn't put it in a paper.
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah. He, he said that on a, on a Q&A, right? Yeah. 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 He said something like, we shouldn't, um, our models w- will not be like much bigger.
0: Yeah. He said they'll use way more compute, which is analogous to saying that you'll train a smaller model, but on more data.
1: Can you like explain the um, kind of insights from scaling laws uh, between like compute model size like the, um, what's called like the Kaplan scaling laws?
0: It was originally something like uh computing if you if your compute budget increases a billion fold your model size increases a million fold and your data set size increases a thousand fold and now it's something like uh i i know it's like one to one but i don't remember like what how big the model size to like compute ratio was like i know i know like i know like the model to data ratio is one to one now but i don't remember what the the compute to model ratio is
1: the new compute
0: to model ratio is.
1: That's also what I remember. Um, and, and I think like the main insight uh, from the first thing you said from the Kaplan law is that um, like model size is how all that matters compared to the data set. And so for a fixed compute uh, budget,
0: yeah. The narrative with the cap one one was model size, like compute is the bottleneck for now until you get to the intersection point of the compute scaling on the data scaling law. And at that point, uh, data is
1: going to become more of a bottleneck. So compute is the bottleneck now. What about like having huge model?
0: Well, yeah, yeah. That, 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 that's, that's, that's like, because like they were saying that because model size grows so fast to like, to get the bigger models, you need more compute. Rather than like you don't you don't need more data because like you don't even have enough compute to like train an optimally large model on that data yet, with the current compute regime was the narrative of the first of like of the original Kaplan paper, but it's it's different now because like the the rate at which you should be getting data given like the rate at which your data should be increasing given your compute budget is increasing is a lot faster now like using the uh you know the chinchilla scaling law. For some increase in compute size, you're going to increase your model by a certain amount. And the amount that your data set size increases is like a one-to-one relation to the amount that your model size increases. I, I don't remember what the relation between model and compute was, but I know that the now the relation between model and data set size is one-to-one, between model size and data set size is one-to-one.
1: And the main side is that now we can just have um, more data and more compute, but not like a lot of more compute. We just, we just need uh, the same amount as more compute. So we can just like have scrap the internet and get more data.
0: It just means like to use your compute budget optimally, the rate at which your dataset size grows is a lot faster. The, the, you know, like, cause all this, all this stuff's like one epoch training.
1: Does that make you more confident that uh, we'll get like better performance for models uh, quicker?
0: Maybe for like YouTube stuff, because YouTube, we're not bottlenecked by data. We're, we're we're bottlenecked by compute or whatever, but that like, that implies like the model sizes might not grow as fast for YouTube or whatever. But for text, for text, we're probably going to be bottlenecked by, uh, it means we're probably going to be bottlenecked by like text and like, you know, code, uh, did by the dataset size earlier than we thought. But for YouTube that, that might like speed up the, like, you know, Video, unsupervised video on all of YouTube, like timeline stuff.
1: Yeah. So I'm curious, what do you think about, like, how much are we bottlenecked by data for text?
0: Yeah. I asked Jared Kaplan this and he said like, wait, okay. it's 300 billion tokens for GPT-3. And then he said like, like library of Congress, whatever could be 10 trillion tokens or something like that and so like the most the most pessimistic estimate of how much like the most capable organization could get is the 500 billion tokens the a more optimistic estimate is like 10 trillion tokens is how many uh tokens like the most capable organization could get like of mo- mostly english tokens
1: so how many like orders of magnitude in terms of like parameters does does this does give us
0: I don't remember what the, I haven't calculated it. Like, I, I remember I kind of did it with the old one, but I haven't done it with the new Chinchilla one. But, but he, like I mean, you, you said this in your thing today or whatever, like we probably are going to be bottlenecked by the amount of code. I was
1: essentially uh, quoting George Kaplan's video.
0: Yeah, yeah, but he, I mean, he's right. I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of wondering what's Anthropic thinking of Adept because Adept's like doing the the like train on all the code thing, and Anthropic was gonna do the train on all the code thing, and they're like, oh crap, we got another startup doing the train on all the code stuff.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I think he said that if you remove the duplicates in on GitHub, um, you get some amount of tokens, um, maybe like fifty billion tokens, five hundred. I'm not sure, maybe fifty billion. Um, Don't comment that. And Yeah. So. The the tricks will be data augmentation, do some alpha good stuff or, um, or you're doing like app, apply the like real things to make your model like b- better. Uh, but it's not clear how to improve performance. So my guess would be you do transfer learning, like you train on like all the different languages.
0: That's definitely what, what they plan on doing. Like you like you see the scaling loss for transfer paper is literally pre-trained on English and then fine-tune
1: on code. Um, my guess is also that like, if you get a bunch of like the best programmers in the world to use Copilot, and then you get like feedback from what they accept, you get higher quality data, you get just like, Oh yeah, this work, this doesn't work. And so you have like one million people, people using your thing a uh, hundred times a day, a thousand times a day, then that's data for free.
0: I mean, I, I view that part kind of as like. Like The human feedback stuff is all is kind of like the alignment part, is the way I view it. I mean, there, there's some people who like say, Oh, there might be ways to get like better pre training scaling if you have like humans in the loop during the pre training, but like no one's really figured that
1: out yet. Well, don't 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 you think like having all this telemetric data from GitHub Copilot is, is you can use it right?
0: Yeah, yeah, but I, I almost view it as like that it's like used for alignment, like for like. RL from human preferences. Oh, okay.
1: Gotcha. Um yeah, I think the other thing they did uh for improving GPT three was just having a bunch of humans uh rate the the answers from GPT three and then like that's the paper of instruct GPT. I think like they had a bunch of humans and it kind of improved the robustness of or um not robustness but um alignment of the answer somehow. Um like it said less like, non-ethical things?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's because, like, people, like, downvoted the non-ethical stuff, I think.
1: Exactly. Um, Yeah, and to, to go back to YouTube, so why is, kind of, YouTube interesting? Uh, so There's unlimited data.
0: Yeah, one, one you're not bound by da- I mean, the gist is YouTube's the most diverse, like, simultaneously diverse and large source of, like, video data, basically
1: and yeah so for for people we're not used to thinking uh, what's the task in in, in youtube
0: yeah it, it could be various things like it might be like a like a contrastive thing or it might be a predict all the pixels thing like i mean so like at least places like facebook seem to think uh like contrastive has better downstream scaling laws so it's going to be a contrastive type thing
1: what's contrastive that type thing
0: like um you want representations that have similar, like semantic meaning to be close together, like to have low cosine similarity, like in latent space. Um, to so basically like maximize the mutual information between, uh, between views. Like I, it's kind of hard to explain without pictures.
1: <laughs> uh. So you'd say that your, your model takes uh, a video, like a, all of the videos and views as input. Frames that were close together, uh,
0: like in time, it tries to maximize the mutual information between them via like minimum uh, via maximizing cosine similarity between the latents of like like a you know like a resonant encoder or whatever that encodes the images for both of those frames that were next to each other, like in time.
1: So he tries to kind of predict correlations. Between frames in some kind of latent space from a ResNet.
0: Yeah, yeah. In 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 the latent space, you want you want frames that were that were close to each other in time to have similar um, similar like you know maximize the cosine similarity between the latent space between the latent between the hidden you know the hidden layer output by the like ResNets that took each of those in each of those frames in.
1: And at the end of the day, you want something that is capable of predicting how many frames in then
0: Kind of for well, the the like uh, philosophy with like the contrastive stuff is we just want a good representation that's useful for downstream tasks or whatever. So like you don't you don't actually like there's no like output really. It's just you're training a latent space or whatever that that can be fine tuned to downstream tasks very quickly.
1: What what are the useful um, downstream tasks like robotics?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like there's, there's a zillion papers on like people pre-train on, do some pre trained contrastive thing in like a uh, OpenAI gym or like Atari environment. And then they show like, Oh, now we barely need any RL steps to like fine tune it or whatever. And it can like learn RL really quickly after we just did all this unsupervised contrastive, like pre-training or whatever.
1: And yeah, wouldn't your model be kind of, um, shocked by the real world when you just like show him like YouTube videos all the time and then you trust for the robot with like a camera kind of not
0: not real I mean because there, there's
1: like there's like everything
0: on YouTube they got like first person egocentric stuff they got third person stuff like it'll just like realize which like whether it's in first or third person pretty quickly I feel like it just infers the context like an analysis on GPT 3 just infers the context it's in because it seemed like every context ever
1: gotcha so, I, I was mostly thinking about like entropy of language.
0: If it's literally like a video generative model, then you can do like just the perfect analogies to GPT-3 or whatever. It gets a little trickier with uh kind of contrastive stuff, but yeah. I mean, e- either either one, I mean, the analogies are pretty similar for either one.
1: So one of the things about the scaling laws papers, the neural scaling laws, um, there was some different exponents for text. Yeah. What do you think is the exponent for video? Would it be like much worse?
0: I know the model size, the model size relation was the big, the big plot twist of the scaling laws for auto-aggressive generative models paper was that the rate at which the model size grows, given your compute budget grows, is the same for every modality. So that was kind of like, that's like a big unexplained thing. Like that was like the biggest plot twist of that paper. And like, no one's been able to explain why that is yet.
1: So there might be some universal law where scaling goes for all modality and nobody knows what, why.
0: Just this stuff, the, the the rate at which your model size grows, given your compute budget is increasing is the same for every modality, which is kind of weird. And no one, I I, I haven't really heard a good explanation why. Who do you think will win the video prediction race? The person who wins AGI is whoever has the best funding model for supercomputers. Whoever has the best funding model for supercomputers wins. Like, I mean, you have to assume all entities are like, they, they have like the nerve, like we're going to do the biggest training run ever. But then given that's your pre-filter, then it's just whoever has the best funding models for supercomputers.
1: So who 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 is able to to, to spend the most money? So would it be USA, China, Russia?
0: Yeah, yeah, it might be something. Like, I mean, my guess is like like China's already uh like they already have like this like joint fusion of like industry uh government and academia via the Beijing Academy of AI in China so my guess is like uh, at some point like Beijing Academy of AI is going to be like look we just trained like a 10 to the 15 parameter model on all of youtube and spent like 40 billion dollars doing it and then at that point, like Jared Kaplan's going to be like in the White House press conference room, being like, "Look, see these straight lines on log log pots. We got to we got to do this in the USA now."
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But like, how do you even spend that much money?
0: Um, by making people think if they don't, uh, they're they'll be like, take they'll they'll like you know, they won't they'll no longer be the superpower of the world or whatever like. China will take over the world or whatever. Like it's it's only like a fear. It's totally a fear thing.
1: <laughs> from looking at uh, the palm paper from Google, yeah, they seem pretty clever on how they use their compute.
0: You mean that thing where they have like the the like the two supercomputers that
1: they split it across or whatever, right? I think TPU pods or something they call it. Yeah, yeah. So it didn't seem like they spent more money than OpenAI. So they, they try to be more careful somehow. So my model of like people spending a lot of money is.
0: Like most entities won't won't be willing to like do the largest training run they can given their funding.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so maybe China, but I see Google as being more careful because of the p- own paper, but maybe I'm wrong. Jared
0: Kaplan says like most like Anthropic and OpenAI are kind of unique in that they're like, okay, we're going to like throw all our funding into this one big training run, but like, Google and like, because Google and Amazon, they have like, he said like at least, uh, 10x or like 100x times the compute that OpenAI and Anthropic have, but they never like use all the compute for single training runs. They just, you know, have all these different teams that use the compute for these different things.
1: Yeah, so they they have like a different hypothesis. OpenAI is like scale is all that matters. Somehow that's their secret sauce. And yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> if you just like scale things and we're going to get better results and Google is maybe there's more bureaucracy and it's maybe harder to get a massive budget
0: yeah it's weird though because like Jeff Dean's like latest like blog post that summarizes all the uh, like Google's research progress mentions like scaling and scaling wells a zillion times so that almost implies that like they're on the scales all you need bandwagon too so I, I don't know
1: <laughs> they probably know but then the question is how, how like private things are and uh, maybe there's stuff we don't really know.
0: I, I know a bunch of Google said like, yeah, we have language models that are way bigger than GPT-3, but uh,
1: we just don't put them in papers. <laughs> so you, you've talked to them like privately or is it just they say it online? I just,
0: I've, I've heard things from people and that's what <laughs> they <nowhere>. say. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not disclosing where I got that information from, but that's just right. uh, what I've heard from people.
1: <laughs> so as we're in like Gossip, I think like some something that was around on the internet, like right when GPT three was launched, was that Google was re- like reproduced it in a few months afterwards, but they didn't really talk about it publicly. Um, I'm not sure about what to do with this information.
0: I, I know the, the like the the DeepMind language models papers. They they were a year old when they when they finally put them put them out on art like on archive or whatever like Gopher and Chinchilla they had the language model finished training a year before they the paper came out
1: so we should just like assume all those big companies are just like throwing papers when they're like not relevant anymore when they have like the other paper already ready maybe but
0: yeah I don't know I don't know why it was delayed that much yeah I don't I don't know what the story is why why it was delayed that
1: long people want to like keep their advantage right
0: i guess but i mean like i I feel like uh gpt3 uh they they threw the paper on archive pretty soon after they finished training gpt3 how do you know um yeah i don't but i mean yeah i don't but it at least it didn't
1: yeah maybe, maybe maybe there was a big delay i don't know so I think you could just like retrace uh, all Sam as tweets tweet, and and then like you you read the next paper like six months after and you're like oh yeah he tweeted about that like uh, sometimes it tweets like oh AI is going to be wild or oh neural networks are really <laughs> capable of understanding I think he tweeted that like six months ago maybe was like when they discovered GPT four. Funny is
0: like when Ilya tweeted did the consciousness tweet they're like goddamn GPT GPT four must be crazy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, neural networks in a, are in some way slightly conscious.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was the fun. That was the funniest quote. To me.
1: Yeah, I th- I think people at OpenAI know things we don't know yet. They're all like super hype. Um And I think you mentioned as well that uh, at, at least previously that um, like Microsoft had some deal with OpenAI and so they need to spend some amount of money uh, before twenty twenty four like.
0: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, right, right when uh, the Microsoft deal happened, like uh, Greg Brockman said, like, we plan on our plan is to train like uh, a one hundred trillion parameter model by
1: twenty twenty four. Okay, so that's in two years.
0: I mean, that was that was in two thousand nineteen, but maybe maybe they've changed their mind after like the Chinchilla scaling law <laughs> stuff. I don't
1: know. Right. And so you were not like impressed by Palm being able to predict, to like do logic on airplane things and explain jokes.
0: In my mind, like the the video scaling laws, like a lot worse than than text basically. That's the main reason why like AGI will probably take longer than five years or whatever, in my mind.
1: Okay. So we, we need, so if, if we just have text, then it's not enough to have AGI. So if, if we have like a, a perfect Oracle that can like talk like us not able to like do like robotic things then we don't have aj
0: yeah
1: well i guess i guess my my main was like is mostly like coding so if we get like coding like codex or copilot that gets really good then everything accelerates and engineers become very productive and then like
0: guess if you could if you could say like engineers get really productive at making improvements in hardware then like maybe that would like I, i get how that would like be like okay, then it's really fast. But like in my mind, I at least at the current rate, I don't see the hardware getting fast enough to like be far enough along like the YouTube scaling law in less than five years from now.
1: Think about hardware. We're just like humans googling things and using. Yeah,
0: yeah I, I get. I get what you're saying. Like you get the Codex thing, and then then we use codecs or whatever to design hardware faster.
1: Imagine you have like Dolly, but like for designing chips. I mean,
0: Nvidia already uses AI for designing their chips.
1: That doesn't make you like think of a timeline of 10 years or, or, or closer
0: maybe 10 years but not five years the thing the thing i'm trying to figure out is uh like try to get like a student researcher gig at like some place so that i can just get access to the big compute during the phd
1: oh so that, that that's your plan just get out of compute
0: yeah i mean it, as long as i have big compute it doesn't matter where i'm a phd i mean it kind of matters if you're like trying to start an agi startup or whatever but uh Safe, safe, safe AGI startup. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we're, we're kind of on record, but I'm not sure if I'm going to, in, to cut this part so you're, you are you're can say unsafe, it's fine.
0: Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I'm, I, I, I don't even phrase I just I just phrase it as beneficial AGI.
1: was <laughs> <laughs> was spotted saying you wanted unsafe AGI the best possible. No, no, no. The way I phrase it is,
0: I think I explained this last time, you have to be thinking in terms of the fastest path because there's like extremely huge economic and military incentives that are selecting for the fastest path, whether you want it to be that way or not. So like, you got to be thinking in terms of what is the fastest path? And then how do you like minimize the alignment tax on that fastest path? Cause like the fastest path is the way it's probably going to happen no matter what, like, so it's about minimizing the alignment tax on that fastest path.
1: Or you can just throw nukes everywhere and try to make things slower? Yeah,
0: I I guess. But I I mean, the people who are on the fastest path will be like more powerful, such that like, I don't know, such that they'll like deter all the nukes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You want to be okay, so you want to just like join the winners, like if you join the scaling team at Google.
0: Thing I've been trying to brainstorm about is who's going to have the fastest, who's going to have the best funding models for supercomputers, because that's the place to go. And you got to try to minimize the alignment tax at that place. Makes sense. So
1: yeah, everyone should infiltrate Google.
0: Just whatever place ends up with the best funding model for supercomputers, try to get as many weird alignment people to like infiltrate that place as possible.
1: So I'm kind of happy of having a bunch of EA people at OpenAI now because they're kind of minimizing the tax there. but.
0: Yeah, I, mean, I kind of viewed it as all the EA people left, like because Anthropic was like the most extremist EA people at OpenAI. So I almost viewed when Anthropic happened, a bunch of EA people left. I viewed it as like EA almost leaving OpenAI when Anthropic
1: happened. But some other people came, right? <laughs> like who? I don't know. Richard Ngo. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a team on like predicting the future.
0: Yeah, I'm, I, but yeah, I want to know what the future's team does because that's like that's like the most out there team. I'm I'm, I'm really curious what they actually do. <laughs>
1: Maybe they, they use their GPT-5 model and predict things.
0: Because, like, I mean, like, Daria, like, you know about the Foresight team at OpenAI, right?
1: Uh, they were trying to predict things as well, like forecasting? Yeah,
0: that that's that's where all this scaling loss stuff came from, was from the Foresight team at OpenAI. Uh, they're gone now because they became Anthropic. But, like, a team called, like, the Futures team, that almost has a similar vibe to, like, a team called the Foresight team. So I'm kind of curious.
1: I mean, they're just, like, doing more governance things and uh, optimal governance and... Maybe economics. That's what it's about: governance and economics. The guy like Richard Ngo is in governance there. Okay. Predicting how the future works, I think, isn't isn't Twitter bio.
0: Yeah, yeah, but I mean, that that's somewhat tangential to governance. Like that almost sounds like something Mike Rick Hertzweil would say: "I'm predicting how the future." Works.
1: <laughs> I. <laughs> My model is like Sam Altman as, like they have GPT four, like they published GPT three in 2020, so it's been like two years. And yeah. they, They've been talking about like in, in their Q and A about like Genchilla's results or something like one year ago, so now they they must have access to something very crazy, and and they're just like trying to think like <laughs> how do we operate with like dall two and their GPT four they have in private and how they do they do something without like fucking up the world I don't know maybe they're just like trying to predict like how to make the most money with their API or.
0: You're saying like if they release it, it's like an info hazard because in my mind like GPT four still isn't like capable enough to f up the world, but you could you, you could argue it's like capable enough to like be an info hazard or something.
1: Imagine you have access to something that does the same kind of gap between GPT two and GPT three, but like GPT four, on like in understanding and being general. Uh huh. And you don't want everyone else to copy your work, so you're just going to to keep it for yourself for some time
0: yeah but i feel like that that strategy is already kind of screwed like you know about how like a zillion large language model like a zillion googlers have left google to start large language model startups like there's there's literally three large language model startups by ex-googlers now OpenAI is like a small actor in this now because because there's like multiple large language model startups founded by ex-googlers that all like that all were founded in the last like six months like there's a zillion VCs throwing money at large language model startups right now. The funniest thing, <laughs> like uh, Leo Gao, he's like, we need more large language model startups because the more startups we have, then it splits up all the funding. So no organization can have all the funding to, to get the really big <laughs> supercomputer. So we just need to, we just need thousands of large language model startups. So no one can get, no one can hoard all the funding to get the really big language model.
1: <laughs> That's the, yeah, Elith AI model. You just like do open source. So like there's like more startups and so all the money gets all the funding gets split, I guess.
0: Yeah. You you could view OpenAI AI was like extra big brain. We need to do we need to like release the idea of our language models onto the world such that no organization could have enough compute to like be such that all the compute gets more split up because a zillion large language model startups will show up all at once.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's the best idea ever. So do you have like other gossips uh, besides like Google's? Did you post something on Twitter about people leaving Google?
0: Yeah, I posted a bunch of stuff. I mean, and also like you saw the, uh, I mean, it's three startups, Adept.ai, Character.ai, and Inflection.ai. They're all founded by, they're all large language model startups founded by ex-Googlers that got a zillion dollars in VC funding to scale large language models.
1: (laughs) What's a zillion dollars like?
0: Like uh, greater than 60 million each each of them each of them got greater than 60 million
1: so that they know about something we don't know and they're just like get money to re- replicate what google does
0: well i mean most of them they were famous people like founder of deepmind scaling team another one is the inventor of the transformer another one was founded by a different inventor of a, tra- a different person on the transformer paper like so i mean they 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 in some ways they have more clout than like openai had or whatever
1: but they don't have like the engineering and all the infra- infrastructure.
0: No, they kind of do. Like, they, <laughs> a lot of them, they were like the head of engineering for scaling teams at like DeepMind or Google.
1: So there's like a another game that is in private at Google and they've been scaling huge models for two years. And yeah, just, like, something like that. starting startups with their knowledge and their use scaling. And we just like, uh, like peasants like us talk about papers that are released when you're after, then nobody tells them out.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, guess, I guess that's, I mean, I, I don't I don't know how long these delays are. I mean, in my mind, like, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess you could view it as a delay thing. But because, like, in my mind, it's just like, yeah, you're right. You're right. It's probably delayed by a year.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, that makes me less confident. About, oh mean, shit!
0: You look like a clone of Lex Friedman from the side. What? <laughs> when, when your when your face is like sideways, you look like a clone of Lex Friedman. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like, cause your haircut's like identical to his. When
1: <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment that I do a lot <laughs> of workout, and now I can just look like Lex <laughs> Friedman. So yeah, uh, Ethan cavalero, what's the meaning of life?
0: Uh, probably just maximize the flourishing of sentient beings. Like a very generic answer.
1: Right, so I've done my left from question. Now I'm just basically him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Maybe we can just go back to like stuff we know more about, like um, your work, and um, because you've been doing some work on scaling. Yeah. Um, so like, like more generally, like why are you kind of interested in scaling, and like how did you get started? In, on, 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 doing research on, the, on,
0: on that. I mean, I knew about the body paper when it came out. Like, I remember I was at this like Ian Goodfellow talk in two thousand seventeen, and he was hyped about the body paper when it came out. Which paper? The deep learning scales predictably empirically. Yeah, it came out two thousand seventeen, and then I kind of just that was just on the back burner, and I kind of just stopped paying attention to it after a while. And then like Aaron Kamatsuzaki was like, "No, dude, this this is this is the thing. Like, this is gonna take over everything." And this was like, in 2019, when he was saying that. And then, uh, yeah. So then, when the scaling laws papers got like repopularized through like the OpenAI stuff, then I kind of like caught onto it a little bit early via like talking with Aaron. I think in
1: 2019 was also when GPT the two, two, two paper was introduced,
0: but that was that was kind of before like the scale like that was still that was before like the scaling law stuff kind of got popularized.
1: Right, scaling law paper is twenty twenty.
0: Yeah, the very end of twenty twenty. Oh no 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 oh no, no no the scaling law paper was the very end of tw- tw- two thousand. It was the very beginning of twenty twenty.
1: And you were already on the scaling train since twenty seventeen.
0: <laughs> I was aware of it, like. But I didn't like, I was kind of just neutral about it until like 2000, like probably the middle of
1: 2019. And yeah, now we were kind of interested in scaling because it's useful to predict kind of where the whole field of AI is going.
0: And also it just, it's, I think people underestimate how easy it is to be contrived if you're not paying attention to scaling trends and trying to like extrapolate to compute budgets and data budgets that are like, well, you know, be the compute data and data budgets in like five years from now.
1: Yeah, if you're a huge company that has a lot of um, budget, but maybe if you're just in a random company, you don't really care about scaling law that much.
0: Yeah, yeah. Or, or if you're like in academia currently or whatever, it, it like, you know, like a zillion, a zillion papers at like fam, fancy conferences. They're like, here's our inductive bias that helps on like our puny academic budget, and we didn't, we didn't test any of the scaling asymptotics to see if it's like useful. When you're like, you know, training a trillion parameter model on all of YouTube or whatever.
1: You're on an academic budget as far as I know. So how do you manage to do your experiments and scaling?
0: There's like the scaling law narrative. That's like, oh, you don't, you don't need the big budget to do to, because you can just predict what the outcomes will be for the large scale experiments. But that's at least current, at least when that, uh, when that narrative got popularized it was mostly for upstream like scaling, but the thing everyone cares about is downstream scaling
1: yeah so if we if we go back for a minute on like your work in alignment um how do you think your work on scaling or generalization like kind of fits with the alignment problem?
0: basically all Alignment, I guess this triggers the hell out of some people, but uh, all alignment is inverse scaling problems. It's it's all down downstream inverse scaling problems. So it's just, in my mind, all of alignment is stuff that uh, doesn't improve monotonically as compute data and parameters increase.
1: There's a difference between not improving and uh, re- uh, inverse scaling. Inverse scaling is, goes badly, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. but uh, I just said not improve monotonically because, like, sometimes there's certain things where like it improves for a while, but then at a certain point it gets worse. So like interpretability and controllability are the two like kind of thought experiment things where you could imagine they get more interpretable and more controllable for a long time until they get super intelligent. And At that point, they're like less interpretable and less controllable.
1: Do we have benchmarks for controllability or? Is-
0: like just benchmarks that rely on prompting as a form of like a benchmark of controllability.
1: And kind of to summarize your take, um, if we were able to just scale everything well and not have this inverse scaling problem, we would get like interpretability and, and controllability and everything else by just like good, good scaling of our models. And so we'd get like alignment kind of by default for free.
0: Yeah. I mean. I, I guess, I mean, like there's stuff besides interpretability and controllability, like th- those are just the examples, like, like what well, you you said, you asked like, what's an example where, uh, like the re the reason I said, I phrased it as alignment oh, is when I said inverse scaling, I said things that don't improve monotonically, cause I, would, I just wanted to say like, yes, there, there are, there's obvious examples where it's just, it gets worse the entire time, but there's some, you could imagine where it gets good for a long time. And then at a certain point, then it starts getting drastically worse. I said all of alignment can be viewed as a downstream scaling problem. The hard part is like Dan Hendricks and like Jacob Seinhardt say like, then the the hard problem though is like measurement and like finding out what are the downstream evaluations. Like, cause say you got like some like fancy, like deceptive AI that wants to do like a treacherous turn or whatever. Like, how do you even find the downstream evaluations to know whether it's going to like try to deceive you or whatever? Cause like, like when I say it's all a downstream scaling problem that assumes like you have the downstream test that you're the downstream like thing that you're evaluating it on but like if it's like some weird deceptive thing that's like it's hard to even find what's the downstream thing to evaluate it on to like know whether it's trying to deceive you or whatever
1: So there's no like test lost on the deception we don't know for sure how to measure and and have a clear benchmark for this
0: yeah it's tricky i mean and some people say like well that's why you need better interpretability you need to like find the deception circuits or whatever
1: (laughs) knowing that we don't know yet, like all the different benchmarks and metrics for misalignment. Don't you think that your work on scaling can be bad because you're actually like speeding up timelines? Yeah.
0: I I get that like info hazard point of view, but like, like in my mind, like whether you want to do all capabilities or alignment stuff that stands, stands the test of time, you need really good downstream scaling prediction. Like, like say you came up with some like alignment method or whatever that Mitigates inverse scaling, like you—you need the actual functional form to know whether that thing will like keep mitigating inverse scaling when you get to
1: like a trillion parameters or whatever. You get what I mean. I get. I guess you, on on a like different differential progress um, mindset, like Jared Kaplan or someone else will come up with those functional forms without you worrying.
0: I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I mean. That's the thing though, like I, Anthropic's got that paper, like predictability and surprise and generative models and they just, they're just like, it's unpredictable. We can't predict it. And I'm like, ah, you guys, nah, I don't believe.
1: <laughs> right. So you're kind of publishing papers one year in advance because those companies are not publishing their results.
0: I I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't, yeah, I didn't even, I don't, I don't know if Anthropic does the delay type stuff that OpenAI supposedly does. But maybe they do. I don't know.
1: (laughs) And you're just like throwing info hazard by publishing those laws.
0: I mean, in my mind, like, whether or not, like, I I get the argument, like, oh, it, like, if you want to, like, if you want to do capabilities work that stands the test of time or alignment work that stands the test of time, like, in my mind, like, everything that people are doing in alignment will be very contrived without the functional form too, though. So it's like, alignment can't make progress without
1: it either. So it's like... (laughs) You get what I mean. <laughs> I have like another kind of view on that is that if people do impressive deep learning or ML work and are also interested in alignment, it's still a good thing. Like um, let's let's take Eleuther AI. Even if they open source their model because they're, they did something impressive and they're talk openly about alignment on their Discord, then guess like a lot of people that are very smart interested in alignment. So if if you publish something and you become like a famous researcher or something in two years. Um, And you talk about alignment in two years, then it's fine. I sort
0: of tweet stuff about alignment, I think. Yeah, I mean, I retweet stuff about alignment at least.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mm. So, if we go back to thinking about, like, predicting future timelines and kind of scaling, I've read somewhere that you think that in the next few years, we might get billion or trillions times more compute, like 12 orders of, of magnitude more.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the, so the, the, AJAYA Coach report said uh, like it's going to max out probably at 10 to the 12 times as much compute as like the amount of compute in 2020, probably like 2070 or something like that. Um, The one issue I have with AJAYA's model is that like, it, she just, she said, she does, uh, what does she do? It's like, it's flops per dollar times willingness to spend is total flops that are allocated to pre-training runs. Problem is like for the big like foundation models, like, you know, 10 of the 15 parameter miles of the future or whatever, you're probably going to need uh high pi like memory bandwidth between all, like memory bandwidth and compute bandwidth between all the compute, which means it has to be on a supercomputer. So like, it like it's not it's not just the flops. It's it basically what really matters. My at least if it, you're assuming it's like big like 10 to the 15 parameter foundation models or whatever. Like it it's the the speed of the fastest supercomputer is what matters. Not not just the total flops that you can allocate. Because if like all the flops don't have good communication between them, then they aren't really useful for training. Like uh you know 10 to the 15 parameter model or whatever once you get to 10 of the 15 parameters, like you're not, you're not, there isn't much reason to go beyond that. And at that point, you then you just have multiple models with 10 of the 15 parameters and they're like doing some crazy open-ended like Ken Stanley stuff in a multi-agent simulator after you do the, like if, if, if it eventually became like you do the 10 of the 15 parameter model pre-trained on YouTube. And then after that you'll have like, you know, like hundreds of 10 to the 15 parameter models that all just like duke it out in like a Ken Stanley open ended simulator to like get the rest of the the capabilities or whatever like once they're in the Ken Stanley open ended simulator then you don't need high commun- compute bandwidth between all those individual like 10 to the 15 parameter models like duking it out in the simulator they can just each each one that only needs like 10 of, it only needs high compute bandwidth between like its own parameters like it doesn't need high compute bandwidth between itself and the other like agents or whatever, like and so like and there like the flops, but you could use all the flops for like the multi-agent simulation, but you only need high compute bandwidth within each agent.
1: So you need a lot of uh, a lot of bandwidth to train models because of the parallelization thing, but you only need flops to simulate on different things at the same time.
0: Yeah, you only you only need high compute bandwidth within an individual brain, but. What like, if you have multiple brains, then you don't need high compute bandwidth between the brains.
1: And what was the kind of simulator you're talking about, the Kenley?
0: Like a Ken, like Ken Stanley, the open-ended guy.
1: I haven't seen that.
0: Ken, like uh, the like the myth of the objective, open-endedness, like Ken Stanley, Jeff Clune, like all that stuff. It's like I don't I don't know. Just Google like, Ken Stanley, open ended. At some point, like <laughs> gotcha. You've probably heard of it, but you just, it's not like registering, like what I'm referencing.
1: Okay. So maybe one kind of last open-ended question on a scale from Paul Cristiano, Eliza Rutkowski, Sam Altman, how like, optimistic uh, are you? about? Adam? definitely
0: not like a or doomer type person. Uh, I, I guess, I guess probably, probably Paul Cristiano is the most similar. I mean, I feel like Paul, Christ- Paul Christian is in the middle of the people you just said.
1: Right. Yeah. So you're less optimistic than Sam Altman?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, basically, I think, I think the Sept
1: of AI is probably going to be really hard. <laughs> so do, do you have like one last monologue or sentence to say about why scaling is the solution for all element problems?
0: Like just all of alignment can be viewed as an inverse scaling problem. Like it all it all revolves around just mitigating inverse scaling, but also you have to make sure you have like the right downstream things that you're evaluating like the inverse scaling on. And like part of what makes it hard is like like you might need to do like fancy thought experiments on alignment, like counterintuitive thought experiments on alignment alignment form to even to find what are the downstream uh Define what are the, like the downstream tests that you should be evaluating, like whether or not there's inverse scaling behavior on those.
1: Awesome. So we get the, the good version as the last sentence and that's a conclusion for the podcast. Thanks Ethan for being on the show.